now. Um, welcome everybody to uh, this edition, this special edition of Mic Drop. Um, it is, what is today? Sunday. <laughs> I've lost track of days now. It's Sunday, November 13th. And we're going to be talking about the midterm uh, elections. Um, obviously, everybody is, is covering as much as or following the coverage as much as they possibly can minute by minute because the balance of power is so high and things do remain somewhat uncertain. But obviously, by now, we've got a really, really good sense of what happened last Tuesday night at the 30,000-foot level. I'm going to make some prognostications kind of at the 20,000-foot level. In Later this week, we'll probably go down to the 10,000-foot level. And then for all of you guys uh, who are really nerdy, and a lot of you guys who follow the show are, we'll go really, really deep after this to start getting an assessment. So again, let's start from the very top here. Historical trend lines, all of the fundamentals that we've been talking about on this show for the course of the past five or six months, all of this moved towards a very strong Democratic position. It was a, it was a good night for Democrats. I'm not going to say great night, okay? I know it feels great, and there's this euphoria, but I also believe very firmly that when we look back at this race, when we're away from the emotion of it all and this huge exhalation and this huge sigh of relief, we're going to realize that as Americans, we spent $9 billion on the most expensive midterms in history, and the actual balance of power did not change that much. Okay, we're going to see Democrats probably move to a plus one position, probably maybe a plus two after the Georgia runoff. And I think, I think Warnock beats uh, Walker. I've said that all along. I think that happens in January. We're going to get into that as to why those dynamics are. There needs to be a focus on that because of the Mansion Cinema developments that you guys have all been aware of. I think the, 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 if a Warnock gets reelected and the Democrats sit at 51, you don't have to deal with negotiating with two people. You just have to deal with negotiating with one. In some instances, if you've got a tiebreaker in the Senate, uh, because of the changes in the Republican conference, you might be actually able to to, 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 to have a lot more a wiggle room, right? One, one vote now is a big, big wiggle room in the Senate. That's just how closely divided we are. So let's just set that aside for a second. But big picture, Senate moves to a plus one position for the Democrats. The House, I was predicting, final prediction was I thought we would have Republicans with a majority in the high teens. I was wrong. It looks like it's going to be Republicans by probably around five. Uh, and we can talk about that because it's going to come down to California races, especially in the Central Valley, what we call the Central Valley, and in Orange County. Okay? Um, with having said all of that, uh, that's not, I don't feel bad about those predictions at all. I'm always off by 10 or 15. Every prognosticator is there's, you know, 538 <laughs> Senate now seats. That's pretty damn good numbers. And the other thing I want to point out is this, the other thing, once all the dust settles and all the Twitter craziness settles, the good quality polls of which most of them were, were actually right. Okay. They were really damn close. Everybody, except for this late surge of bad pollings, this bad poll stuff, and we'll talk about that in a second because I don't think it made a hill of the difference in anything except expectations. All of the polling was, was largely quite accurate. It was all predicting essentially this. They were wrong by the margin in the House. And I, I don't know if that's avoidable, okay, in a midterm elections because when you're polling nationally and you're not going district by district, it's virtually impossible to discern what, what New York 22 versus Virginia 3 versus New Mexico 2 and Colorado 8 and California 22, all of those, all, every one of the seats that I just mentioned were swing states for all very different reasons. You can't discern that from a national sample. You can get a sense 
as I said before, you can get a pretty good sense, but you can't get a really deep look and deep understanding of what's driving that district's dynamics. That takes me to the third point. And the third point is uh, the, inv- the variation in this election cycle is like something I have never seen. And I think I, I, I don't want to overstate or overstress what that might be, because anytime you see one interesting data point, doesn't mean it's a trend line. It means it's one data point. Could be the beginning of a new trend. It could just be a blip. It could be a one or two episode cycle thing. Um, but for now, what we saw was this tremendous variation. Florida had a red wave, right? It had a red wave. It just did. Michigan has an extraordinary blue wave, right? Most of the Great Lakes did. Uh, and if you look at Texas, it's it very mixed. Beto O'Rourke ran better than he had than the, the average Democrat in some time. But down ticket in the Rio Grande Valley, you're seeing continued split. split. You're continuing to see continued slippage with Hispanic voters. Um, there's uh, a, some, a lot of um, the, 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 the ticket splitting between the two. What you're seeing in Nevada, for example, where a Republican is elected as governor and Cortez Masto wins re-election as a Democrat. Um, These are interesting signs. The differentials between the governors and the Senate seats were pretty extraordinary, even in the polling, even though they didn't necessarily materialize in partisan splits. There were such big gaps in places like Pennsylvania and like where where Shapiro uh, wins pretty commandingly and Fetterman kind of squeaks it out. J.D. Vance barely squeaks one out. DeWine wins in a very, very uh, uh, significant landslide. Um, These are telling us something. It tells us that the voters are increasingly discerning. That means they're making these split ticket decisions or they're not voting straight party lines the way that they used to. Now, not all of them, but a hell of a lot of them. And when I say a hell of a lot, what I mean is way, way more than we have seen probably in my adult lifetime. The first congressional campaigns I was doing were back in 1992. Okay, that was my first congressional race. Um, and, and that was when we started to see in the mid-90s this real hyper-consolidation uh, of, of the, partisan, um, the partisanation of our politics. It was not uncommon prior to that to see like even in California where you would have a Republican governor and then you would have, uh, you know, uh, you would have a, a George Duke Majin who was governor and then you would have an Alan Cranston who was a, a Democrat in, in the United States Senate. And then the other seat would go from a John Campbell to a Pete Wilson to a, a whoever it was going to be. But my point is you could have a, a lot of states. It was not uncommon to have the governorship of one party and the U.S. senators of other parties. That, that was not uncommon. That became extremely uncommon by the end of the 1990s. It's virtually unheard of in American politics now. I think there's maybe five or six states that have that split out of all 50. So these swing states that we talk about um, become much more important because they're so much more rare. But the splits in these states are something that we were seeing, at least from the polling data, that was telling us something. And I want to explore a little bit about what that means not beyond just the discernment, just not beyond just voters saying, I'm not going to vote a straight Republican ticket uh, just because I'm a Republican. In fact, I want to start with the Republicans because, and, and I was saying this, guys, for weeks and for months. I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I'm going to a little bit, okay? I was saying that the one data point you really need to focus on is which party is viewed as the most extreme. 
That's the one fundamental data point that I was saying over and over and over again that nobody was paying attention to. Okay, I talked about the generic ballot. I talked about Biden approval ratings. I talked about the rolling averages. We talked about all of these things. But the one metrics I kept saying over and over and over again is that an era of negative partisanship, people vote against things. They don't vote for things. And when you're trying to gauge how people are going to vote against, you have to look at the party that is viewed most negatively. You have to be you have to look at the way people what, what they're going to vote against. This is really critical because it did at least three things, three things in this election that nobody is talking about. The first is the consolidation of the youth vote. It was extremely important. Now, I, I said people aren't talking about it. People are talking about this too much right now. But, but, but what they're not talking about is the reason why. So I'm going to dispel some myths right now. It's going to probably piss some people off, but that's okay because all I've offered you guys is the truth as I see it, and, and if, if it makes sense to you, you agree with it, and if you disagree with me, then that's okay too. It's part of what we do here on the show. So the youth vote constitute about 27% of all voters. That's not that high. It's a little bit high historically. It's hitting the higher range, but you know what? All voting groups are at the higher end of their ranges, okay? So this, this there's this narrative, especially on social media, that, that Gen Z saved us. They saved the world, and, and God bless them. I, I'm not going to take that away from them. Let young people believe that. But as you get to be a little bit older, you start to realize, well, wait a second, maybe math matters, and maybe science matters, and maybe facts matter. The youth vote was only 27% of the electorate. Now, it is true. It is true, and this I will not take away from them. It is true that we have, uh, that they voted about you know 75%. Three-quarters of them voted for the Democrat. And those numbers were so overwhelming, that, that vote break, that, that partisan break was so significant that it did cancel out, I think, I, I read one analysis. I don't know how true it is because, I'm, frankly, I'm not paying that much attention to youth vote. I don't think it's that big of a deal. I just don't see it. But if, if the numbers are to believe and if, if Gen Z voters showed up at 27% and three-quarters of them voted for the Democrats, the argument is that canceled out every voter above the age of 65. Okay, Now, that's pretty significant. That that is pretty significant. It's not determinative, by the way. It's not that didn't change the outcome of the elections alone. Okay. Which takes me to the second dynamic. And that is understanding that and this is really, really important. Okay. And you're not hearing a lot of talk about this, but you're gonna hear about it here on Mic Drop because I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you about the fundamentals of this race. The electorate in 2022 was whiter, W-H-I-T-E-R, not whiter. W-I-D-E-R, not W-I-D-E-R, whiter, older, and more Republican. It was plus four Republican off of 2020. The electorate, let me say this again. This is really fascinating. It's not uncommon for midterms, by the way. But the electorate in 2022, last Tuesday night, was whiter, older, and more Republican than it was in 2020. Again, that's not terribly shocking, but in a year where Republicans did so poorly, you have to say what happened. And what I will tell you, I tweeted this out earlier, is it, there aren't enough young voters to overcome a model. Like I said, if, if youth vote was so high, why was the electorate older? Right? 
Got to ask, got to ask that question, right? I know it's great for the MSNBCs and all the little, you know, Twitter celebrities in the world saying, "Oh, we got out the youth vote. We got out the youth vote." No, no, you you really didn't. The older vote was was weighted more, and it always is. The older people vote. I'm not taking that again. I don't want to take too much away from them, but I also want to put it into perspective. Okay, whiter Latino vote went down from 2018 to 2020. Not huge, but enough to be measurable and to be market. So you're also hearing this bullshit narrative out there that Latinos built this brown wall and it's because Latinos won the Senate and there's no rightward shift. Jen Psaki, sorry, Jen Psaki, you're full of shit. Sorry if I tweeted something out. This pisses me off, by the way. This is how misinformation starts. They know that they're doing it. And it's bad when Kelly McEnany does it and it's really bad when Jen Psaki does it, okay? If you're gonna lie... Take it to a special lying left-leaning media platform, the way like an OANN or a Newsmax, because what she's putting out is saying that outside of Florida, that the Democrats won by a two-to-one margin. That's quantifiably untrue. The exit polls never looked stronger for Republicans than they did in 2022. Those are exit polls, Mike. Polls are always wrong. Fair enough. Let's look at the precincts data. And when Lucas jumps on, he's going he's gonna to provide some data that's, that's jaw-dropping from my estimation, which is the Hispanic vote shifted marginally even further right. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this, okay, because this is really important. Mike, you say, how the hell is it possible that the Democrats pick up a lot more Latino seats and you're trying to convince us that the Latino vote went more Republican or at least stayed as Republican as it was, which is at the high end of its historic range. Incidentally, all these deniers of all the Latino right shift that they were saying for two years now accept, now that it's after Tuesday, are all saying, oh, yeah, well, that was the number. So now the Democrats crawled it all, clawed it all back. Okay? Be, be a good consumer of data and information because the left will lie to you as much as the right will lie to you. And again, that's... the Look, I'm not looking as I've said. If you're if you're new to Mic Drop, let me make this really clear. I'm not looking for a big show. I'm looking for a smart show. Okay. If you want to know what's driving the electorate, at least from my perspective, I'm going to give you an evidence based background. And I'm, I'm going to talk facts. I'm going to talk numbers. I'm going to talk science. That's what you get here. If you want to hear cheerleading and people just telling you what you want to hear over and over. Go back to Twitter and, and join, you know, the, the, the resistance and, and make yourself feel better if that's what makes you feel better. To me, I'd rather have facts when I'm dealing with a situation and have an understanding. And again, I'm not always right. I'm not. And I, a lot of you guys have dispelled and, and helped me come to different understandings of what's been happening on the ground. But on this, I'm pretty, you know, I got, got into a debate on Twitter with Congressman Gallegos yesterday who apparently now thinks he's a, uh, an expert in polling, exit polling. I've been doing exit polling since before he was in politics, okay? And I'd love to have him on the show. But I, and, and part of what I'm having Lucas look at is let's look at his district. And the truth is, in Ruben Gallegos' Arizona district, it appears that what is happening is, in his district, the Hispanic vote actually did move about three points to the left, Congratulations. That's good. That's good news. That was actually what I predicted was Arizona would go back to a traditional 30% range. The exit polls had it at 40. Okay. So he was, you know, kind of attacking me and flaming me and saying, um, you can't believe exit polls. Why are you saying this? And like I was saying, 
now these guys are believing the same exit polls that they discredited two years ago, by the way. And the same crew of people are, are, are undermining the credibility of the exit polls that they discredited two years prior to that. They did it in Hillary Clinton's race. They did it in Joe Biden's race. They did it in the 2014 midterms. I've been doing this for a long time. I know how the Democrats do it. And they try to discredit every election cycle. Why? You don't see the Republicans doing it. Why do the Democrats do it? The Democrats do it because it's moving away from them. That's why. Okay. If they were out there trumpeting and saying all of these things were, you know, were good, was good news, it would be because they believed the data. It reminds me of the, the, the climate science denialism in the Republican Party. You can show people facts. You can show people evidence. You can show people trend lines. But at a certain point, if you, if you have drank the partisan Kool-Aid so much that you feel that your job is to fool people, there's really not much I can do for you. And that's unfortunately the data that is being put out right now on this Latino vote. It's just Hispanic hoax, right? It's like COVID. It doesn't really exist. It's going to wash out by Easter. That's what that's what the Democrats are telling you on this Hispanic rightward shift. It's just it's just it's just the facts, uh, and the, and the facts are becoming more and more clear. By the way, and as the data comes, in, wait till California. California is going to show some shocking data to these people. It's going to shock them. Okay. So anyway, let's set that aside. Uh, one of the issues, uh, other issues I have. So that that brings me to the fourth dynamic, and this is by far the biggest one that you're not hearing about. I was tweeting about it a little bit earlier. How do you have an electorate that's whiter, right? Less Latino, less African-American, more white, older. Youth vote shows up, but not near the numbers that they're trying to make it out to be. And more Republican. And yet, the numbers stay basically the same in the balance of power in Congress, with Democrats having a slight pickup, one vote in the Senate probably, and and, and probably... Um, um, uh, look, if Nancy Pelosi has a five-vote majority right now, let's just say that it switches to a five-vote majority to Kevin McCarthy, let's just say hypothetically, with a one-to-one swing, you're looking at a five-vote move. We literally, after $9 billion, may see five House seats change, five, and one Senate seat, a total of 538 seats in Congress and six in, in both houses, change hands. Like, that's, that's unbelievable. That, the most money ever spent nationally, and we could see just six seats change hands, five in the House and one in the Senate. Um, that, that, again, I think is its own separate data point. That the polling was essentially saying that. It was saying it was leaning a little bit more Republican because of the, uh, the, the lack of the Dobbs data baked into people's polling. Tom Bonnier, I, I had a slight conversation with him back and forth. Uh, this morning it was coming coming down from um, from an event up that was up out over the weekend in Lake Tahoe. I spent some time talking with Tom because I, I think you guys are all following Tom Bonnier. If you're not, you should be. Uh, did a phenomenal job. Um, I congratulated him today. I just said, I mean, this cycle is yours. You called it, and not only did you call it and have a better understanding of what everybody was saying, but you were the only one saying it, and uh, you were getting a lot of criticism, and you never wavered from what your data was telling you. And I love that part of it because Tom is a practitioner too. Tom's not just a vendor. Tom gets in there and he is advising campaigns, Democratic campaigns, on, on what to do. He's not a pundit. He's like me. He's a, he's a practitioner. He actually does his shit. And that matters 
because you can see the pundits kind of going back and forth and they're seeing all the public data and they're more afraid of being outside of the herd than they are of actually looking clearly at data. And that's why, why, why what I'm so proud of what Tom did is I've been in that, I've been in that seat. When, when I was in the Lincoln Project and I was making the calls on where all the money was going to go, you damn well better be right because the country's, the country's counting on you. And if you fuck that up, right, it, not just where to go, but how much to go and with what message to go with and the timing, it's stressful, okay? It's, it's, it's a lot of it's – it's very stressful, and there's not a lot of people in this business that have ever been in that position. So it's very hard to explain. There's maybe 10 or 12 people that have actually done that. Think about that. And, and, and at that level of a campaign is to, when you are the person who has to make the spending decisions on how much money, in what state, and where to go based off of all the data that you have with the right messages at the right levels and the right times. That's, that's stressful, especially when the stakes are so high. And again, I just a big shout out to Tom uh, Bonnier with Catalyst. He, he uh, held the line. He really, really did. And he deserves a lot of praise um, for what he was able to pull off. If you're not following him on Twitter, you should be because he's going to be putting out a ton of really good data in the coming days um, with, with a lot of the findings that they get once all the ballots do come in. Now, he and I disagree on a couple of things. That's fine. You're not going to find unanimity on anything, um, but we've got a great working relationship. I'm a huge, huge fan and think the world um, of him and the work that he did, and I'm hoping that he gets to enjoy this moment. I, I told him that he needs to and take this victory lap because um, he's clearly the guy who got the, the most accurate uh, this election cycle. Okay, guys, if you've got questions, jump into the queue. Um, Lucas is not here yet. I don't think he is. Lucas, are you here? If you are, you know, raise your hand and jump in. He may be joining us a little bit later. I told him to bring some Arizona data because I know that all eyes are on Arizona. Let me talk about that right now uh, until there's some questions jump into the queue. Um, you know what? My button says that this is off. Are people trying to get in? Did that change dynamics? Anybody see anything different? Can I have somebody jump into the queue? Andy, why don't you jump into the queue? You don't have to ask me a question. I just want to make sure that I'm work- if this is working okay. You're not able to. Okay, perfect. How's that now? There we go. Okay. You can ask a question if you want or don't or take your pl- that spot in the queue. Uh, sorry, if you were trying to get in, you can get in now. My bad. My apologies. I'm still trying to work with this new uh, visual feature. So um, uh, do you have a question, <laughs> Andy, before I, before I go on this next round? I'll open it up if you want to. Sure. I know you've always got one. That's why I asked if you've got one. But how are you doing? How are Thank you? How, how are you, mate? All right. You, you're alive? You've been slept at all or? Yeah, you know, I mean, I know I look bad. I, know, like, I, look, I look. I haven't slept. I actually got a little bit of downtime. I went to a wedding over this weekend. Um, the the cool things about these elections, and again, this is the most fun time, but it's also the most overwhelming time because literally, like right now, starting about twenty four hours ago, and for the next seventy two hours, all the really good data is going to come in, and it's going to tell us yes. what was really happening, tells us who was yep. right, tells us who was wrong, and the the funny thing about it is. 
the narrative is almost always wrong. The first thing that you hear the first four or five days, 90% of the time they're wrong. And like I said, but by then it's usually too late. And there's, there's Lucas. I'll bring him up in just a second. But yep. the narrative that you're hearing right now is that Gen Z won this thing, right? And Latino and Latino groups are out there kind of pounding their chest saying, we did amazing. We pushed this back. That's, that's not accurate either. It's going to become more clear in the coming weeks. But, you know, truth is oftentimes the first casualty of war. And I don't think that's any different than what we're going to see or experience at this moment in time. But yeah. Um, so sorry, so, you got a question, Andrew? You know, no, you're right. <laughs> if you, um, so how how is Trump going to ruin the GOP's chance uh, in twenty four in those really tough Senate races that that the Democrats are going to be fighting? Right, because I mean, you know, you always got to look at the big picture, right? You know, everyone focuses on the micro, but the, the macro is what is what runs the game. Um, twenty four Senate map is horrible, right? Is he going to come and yeah, we're going to see more crazy, more crazy candidates that that he's going to he's going to own. Um, I mean, you know, I think everyone has to be honest here, right? That the, 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 it's a cult, and he owns it, right? And yeah, anything else is just wasting time. So, what sort of crazy people is he going to nominate for the Senate races in twenty four? And um, how badly are they going to lose? So great questions. Let's talk about Trump a little bit because I've been getting a lot of that. and I've, I've been pushing some of this stuff out, talk about it on, on social media. Here's a couple of things I think about Trump. Uh, and it's going to be all over the place because Trump is all over the place. But let's talk about the immediate, the immediate, you know, where things are at. Um, look, Fox News has turned on him. Rupert Murdoch has turned on him. The American Enterprise Institute, which is the think tank apparatus of the American right, has turned on him and said, we need to get past Trumpism and move on to somebody else. Um, people don't realize how much the U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, has turned against them. So the establishment money has moved away from Trump. The media infrastructure, at least the top of it, has moved away from Trump with Fox. And the policy arm, as it exists anyway with the Republican Party, have all basically vocally publicly said, we don't want this guy anymore. Now, that doesn't mean that the base is going to go there, but he is polling in the, lo the lower end of his range. He knows it. He can feel it. He knows he got his ass kicked. There's no other way to, spend, uh, to, to spin it. He lost pretty significantly on Tuesday night, and voters rejected this Trumpist you know, element. And, and, and what I'm not too sure how much time I spent on this, but that, that fourth mm. element I was going to talk to is related to this, Andy, and that is, that, that is this. Republicans left the Republican party in 2022 on Tuesday night at levels much higher than I have probably ever seen in my adult lifetime. That's mm -hmm. going to be the narrative that comes out in about a week from now when we're able to do what we call the regression analysis yeah, to yeah, see yeah. how votes actually happened in precincts. And what it's going to show is that we have, again, a wider, older, more Republican electorate where Democrats essentially kind of won. That only mm -hmm. happens if Republicans are defecting and if independents are breaking towards the Democrats in very significant numbers. That's what happened. So the Democrats right now, I think, good for them. They're euphoric. I'm euphoric. I'm very happy about what happened. This wasn't about young voters. This wasn't about mm -hmm. black voters. This wasn't about Latino voters. This wasn't about, you know, Democratic women voters. This was about Republican Voters, probably female, I'm guessing, because that's what, what all the data was saying since Kansas, 
the Kansas special, and in independence breaking away from the Republican Party. That's what happened. Okay, and that's going to be the truth after all the you know Democratic constituencies take their credit and try to fight for the leverage in the party to say this is who we are yep. and this is what the party should be standing for. That's just the way these things work. But I think when we look back, my gut, my instinct, Lucas will bring Lucas up on stage in just a bit. There's no other way you can have the composition of the electorate look like that and have it break the way that it did unless you are seeing very significant Republican defections. Lucas and I called that the Bannon line in 2020 against Trump. The Bannon line certainly got much bigger than that 4% mark that we were trying to hit in 2020. I think I've seen numbers. If you look at Maricopa County, how Carrie Lake is not getting the performance out of those Republican districts that she needs at this point in time. By the way, yeah. if, if we're on this call and any races are called, it's the Carrie, Carrie Lake race is called, put that in the room chat for us, guys, because we all want to know. I'm obviously not on yeah. social media while I'm talking to you guys. But if something develops, you know, put it, give us updates. Let me know what's going on. But Carrie Lake is not getting the Republican performance she needs from Republican precincts in Arizona at this point in time. There's still about 6% of the votes outstanding. She can still get there if there are strong GOP districts. I think Lucas may disagree with me. I think in the final analysis, she's going to fall short um, yep. because she's not getting the margins that she needs. But historically, if you look back, she should, she should be able to get there if most of these votes are coming in from Maricopa County. And I think with the last penal county uh, vote yep. that came in uh, – that's what we're looking at. So the vote, the margins, I think, will close. The question is, will they close enough? Long, long off-topic way of, of of getting us back to this Trump dynamic. If Trump is showing that he can't hold even the Republican base anymore, he's not only in deep trouble, um, but the party is in deep trouble. And that's the realization now of what has gone on. Now, this is where it gets really messy. Donald Trump is not going to go away. He's not going to no. go underway under any circumstances, any circumstances, even if he goes to jail, which, of course, he won't be in jail in two years. It'd have to be a trial. But let's just say yep. let's yeah, just yeah. say he goes to jail. He'll run from jail. OK, because 100%. as I said, on politicology on Ron Steslow's show, irrelevancy is a fate worse than death for Donald Trump. Yep. OK. Uh, somebody just. Uh, Chad Wasserman is saying it's extremely tough to see how Carrie Lake wins now. That's kind of what I was saying is it's possible mm -hmm. those breaks are there, but she's have to get like 70, 30 breaks and she's getting like 52, 48 breaks. Like just, it's just not happening. She's going to uh, fall short, um, probably short enough to say by I'm guessing she'll lose by probably 20, 30,000 votes. Be interesting to see what, what Lucas uh, would think on that. Um, um, and that's enough for her to say the, the vote was stolen, right? Now, it's not going to go anywhere, yeah. I don't think, because nobody else won. Yeah, and, and the question being asked, is she concede or call it fraud? If it's less than 30,000, I think she calls it fraud anyway. The question is how much energy is there behind it? And I think the Republicans nationwide realize they got their asses kicked everywhere, and they're not going to go be like, all, oh, yeah, except for this one place where Arizona, Maricopa County <laughs> called it fraud. And if they do, it's going to hurt them. So, again, getting back to... Sorry, guys. Getting back to Trump, Trump's going <laughs> to announce. Trump's going to announce on what Tuesday or Wednesday, right? Yeah. And he announced. He announced Wednesday. You'll love this. Right? You can't make this shit up. He announces on Wednesday. Big announcement at Mar-a-Lago. We all know what it's going to be. I'm running for president. 
Wednesday is also the same day there's supposed to be a leadership vote for Kevin McCarthy to become speaker. Who's going to What is him? Trump saying? <laughs> and he's invited he's invited House congressional members to Mar-a-Lago. Mm-hmm. What he is saying is I'm the leader of the party. Okay? He's telling Kevin McCarthy and Jason Miller has already said this. Jason Miller he's already, has already said if Kevin McCarthy wants to be speaker, he's going to have to openly endorse Donald Trump for president before he gets Trump votes from the House. And they're not kidding, which means Kevin McCarthy is going to have to do anything and everything that Donald Trump asks him to do at a time when the establishment in the Republican Party as it exists is moving away from him. Again, the chamber has moved away from him. The uh, American Enterprise Institute, the policy wing has moved away from him. Fox News is moving away from him, by the way. Not yet. Oh, for now, for now. Come on, Mike. The, 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 they've all tried to knife him before, and he's, and he's beaten them back, right? So this is, not, this is not the first time in America around for this guy, right? He knows, right, how to do it. And, that, and that's exactly why he's going to play the cards the way that he's going to. And like, let, let, me, let me finish, too, because I agree with mm. you. I'm, yeah. I'm just trying to set up what's going to happen. Sorry. I also think DeSantis blinks. DeSantis ain't going to take him on. DeSantis is too young. He just won commandingly. He's the only Republican that has any ability to stand up, however far-fetched, to say, I know what I'm doing and nobody else does. I can win. I got 58% of the Hispanic vote. Yeah, it's all Cuban, but there's some Mexicans yep. and some Puerto Ricans and other people mixed in there. Nobody else can compare to my record. Everybody is now trying to court him. hes I don't think he runs. And I don't think he runs because why would he? Mm. Donald Trump has already basically said, I will gut you like a fish. Okay, I think the nomination is Donald Trump's if he wants it, with one exception, and that is if Tucker Carlson wants it. And if, before you dismiss it, and before you say, Mike, you're absolutely crazy, you have to truly understand where the Republican base is at. What do Donald Trump, Mehmet Oz, J.D. Vance, Kerry Lake, Herschel Walker, Larry Elder all have in common? That's all it is. They're media figures. Yeah. Some are athletes. Some are, you know, on uh, TV figures. None of them ever held elected office. That's what the Republican Party wants now. If you think, if you're looking back and saying, well, who's a governor with experience? Who's got a basic level of support? Who's a senator that could rise and, you know, carry a constituency? That is yeah. such an old, outdated way of looking at what has happened mm-hmm. to the Republican Party. There is no evidence of suggesting or saying that. So I, I just, I don't see it. Mike Pence, of course. Mike Pence isn't going anywhere. I mean, Pence is the last guy that's going to get the nomination to anything. So having said that, I really do believe that the person most capable, if he wanted to get the nomination, would be Tucker Carlson. I don't think it's that crazy. Having said that, if he doesn't want it and Donald Trump wants it, it's Trump's. Okay, DeSantis, I don't think, runs against Trump. And even if DeSantis does, I think he loses to Trump. There is no upside for DeSantis to run. There's every incentive for him to watch the party sink further. He's got four years. He's perfectly aligned to position and prep and build a national base, a national following, while the party is burning around him and Donald Trump is tearing it down with his claws to position for running four years. DeSantis is a very young man, by the way, very young, okay? He's in his 40s. He's got plenty of time. There's no rush here. So that time is his, his, his ally. So Donald Trump, like I said, is going to do everything he can. And this next week, it's going to be a fascinating week to exert power over not just the House, over not just uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy, which is going to be embarrassing 
Kevin McCarthy is going to go bend the knee and it's going to be humiliating. And that's what Donald <laughs> Trump wants. Donald Trump is going to humiliate him and he's going to humiliate him because the more he humiliates him, the more he's showing everybody else what happens to anybody who dares to even think about stepping out of line, which takes us to the next guy who's going to, he's already opened up fire on. And that is Mitch McConnell. There's open warfare between Trump, Trump, world and McConnell McConnell world right now. And think about the world that McConnell occupies. McConnell's already in a leadership fight. He's already extremely unpopular with the Republican base. He has Donald Trump coming after him in open warfare position. He has the Stephen Millers of the world and the uh, Kaylee McEnany's of the world and the Jason Millers of the world. All of the Republican staffers that worked under Trump coming out openly, open warfare against McConnell. And now he's got this special election, which looks compromised because Walker's not in as good a position and the energy is not going to be in Walker's direction heading into January when you just lost the last two January specials a couple of years ago. Oh, and by the way, Warnock was one of those candidates. And here's where it gets best. Here's the ice cream, mm. the cherry yeah. on top of the ice cream. And that is Herschel Walker isn't going to vote for Mitch McConnell. If Herschel Walker wins, he's going to vote for the Trump-backed candidate. So McConnell is in a bad, bad spot. His numbers are already low, and he's got to spend the rest of his money funding Herschel Walker, who's not going to vote for him. In fact, he's going to try to get somebody elected who's going to be yet another vote against you. So if you win, Mm. you lose worse. That's what McConnell's life is right now, okay? So Trump has a lock here, and he has a lock largely because DeSantis doesn't have the balls, and it also doesn't make sense for him to get in and think and run in this primary. I just don't see that happening. And I do think it's going to get more and more difficult because you're going to start to see more and more defections from, this is very important, the same voters that we saw on Tuesday night. If Donald Trump proved anything, if the Lincoln Project proved anything, it's that the elected class is not going to do the right thing ever. To your point, you're exactly right. But that doesn't mean that people of good conscience can't stand up and make a difference. And we're not going to be a huge part of the party. There's not Mike Madrid. The Mike Madrid Lincoln Project never Trump lane of the Republican Party is never going to get big enough to be a majority of the party ever again. It's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to stop it from coming back to power, and that's why what happened Tuesday night was so damn powerful, is when you were getting, like Carrie Lake, 52 and 53% out of precincts that you should be getting 68 and 70% out of, that means there's like 15, 16, 20% of Republicans who are saying, I'm out, I'm checking out, I'm getting off the crazy train. Like, I've already gone three stops too far, and I'm done, and I'm bailing, (laughs) and I'm out of here. And that's what's happening. Those voters, you have to get not only 100% of them back for Donald Trump in 2024, you have to win back those independents that you lost. And I'm going to wrap it up on this point because I know I've already talked too long on this, but I think it's a really important part because this week is going to be fucking bat shit crazy town nuts with Donald Trump fighting for power over the party. My guess is he will probably win, but that is not, he's not going to go back to the 2016, 2020 numbers. He just will not. There are too many people who have shown that he's a loser to have a hundred percent of the people go back. Okay. So what I was going to say was I had a really good point before I went into yet another diatribe. 
and that was um, twenty twenty four Senate. My, my question, my question, twenty twenty four Senate. Senate. What is it? Does it do, 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 do I, the Democrats I, then probably probably I, survive I, a couple of those tough runs? Yeah, and I haven't looked at the 24 Senate map, but it's not great for the Democrats either. I mean, look, for the next 20, no, it's 30, tough. 40, it's a tough map. It's a tough map. Yeah, tough I, I think Democrats. it's going to get it, – look, the way the United States is chopped up, there's a built-in geographic institutional advantage for uh, the Republicans. Just there's all yes. a lot of these small states yes. are just there. The, the South Dakotas, the North Dakotas, the Arkansas, the Missouri. I and mean, there's just enough of those. Where the Democrats can't be competitive no matter what they do. And so, you know, it's going to be a tough map for a while. But this is why this is so significant is what happened Tuesday night. It's not like youth voters showed up in a huge record number. They just didn't. It's not like Latinos came back and gave them the margins that they needed. They didn't. What happened was enough Republicans of conscience, and it was more than I have seen ever in my adult, life, adult lifetime, defected towards the Democrat, not because they like Joe Biden because they don't, not because they like the direction of the country because they don't, not because they believe the Democrats have a solution to inflation because they don't, not because they like student debt relief because they don't, but they believe that the party has gone batshit crazy and they have had enough. And that's the most important saving grace is because when there is enough people in either party to say, you know what, the process of American, the American experiment is more important to me than getting 90% of what I want, that's what democracy requires. You don't get all of what you want. If everybody gets all of what they want or expects all of what they want, you end up in a civil war. Democracy requires losing. And these voters were literally showing up voting for a party that is going to do 90% of of what they do is is going to be what they don't like. There's something romantic about that. There's something beautiful about that. There's something very American about that. And that's why I feel better today than I did two or three days after we beat Donald Trump. When I was driving back from Park City, Utah, two or three days after the election, I was realizing that was the end of the beginning. Like this shit's just starting. Yep. And I thought that there would be two years of relative peace and calm before it got really, really bad. Um, and, and if re- Republicans picked up the Senate and or the House by a wide majority, shit was going to get real, guys. OK, now, I also believe that this this election was a lot more like Dunkirk, as I've said, than it was the Battle of Britain. And what I mean by that is if you haven't seen the movie Dunkirk or if you're not familiar with World War Two battles, Dunkirk mm-hmm. was an escape. It was the British getting off the French uh, beaches before they were completely decimated and annihilated by the aggressive oncoming Nazi army. That's the way to look at what happened Tuesday night. The ability to live and fight from a stronger fortified position is what happened. The Democrats didn't really win anything. They didn't win anything. Okay, They're not going to control the House. But they do have the ability to fight from a position of strength in the presidential election. And as I've also said to all of my mic drop listeners, time is extremely important because every election cycle that we go through, these younger Gen Z voters become a bigger part of the model and these 65 plus voters are dying out. 
I hate to put it that way, but that's what's going to save us is these young voters who are going to vote in bigger numbers. It weren't that big in the midterms. They will be very, very big in the presidential, and they will get us 100%. through. So every election cycle for the next three or four is going to be imperative that we win, and it feels like we're going uh, on the right direction. Andrew, thanks so much. I hope I at least somewhat answered the question there. Thanks, Mark. That was awesome. <laughs> All right. Thanks, buddy. I, I really appreciate you calling in. Mariana, we'll go ahead and bring you up into the queue. Lucas, jump into the up up into the queue too, real quick. If you're not here, jump in so I can bring you up onto the stage. But Mariana, how are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for joining in. You're welcome. I just wanted to circle back on Florida and DeSantis in 2024 versus Trump. Um, okay. You know, as, as a Florida political strategist, I can assure you that Trump has, or excuse me, DeSantis has been telling supporters that if Trump jumps in, he will not and he will sit out till 24 because in his mindset, to your point, is that he's got nothing but time on his side in terms of his age and he doesn't want the bloodbath between him and Trump. And look, he carried Florida last Tuesday, 63 out of 60 out of 67 counties in Florida. He painted that entire map red, which tells me Trump will need him on the campaign trail if he's not running against him in the actual election. There you go. I mean, I, that's a much better assessment than I could have given. I think that's exactly right. It just, I just don't understand why DeSantis would jump in. Now, look, maybe Garland, you know, indicts Trump, you know, but before Thanksgiving. You're Very real ears. Yeah, very real, right. Very real possibility could happen, but until that does happen, and, and the polling could could tank, and then who, I mean things are going to change. A lot's going to change. But right now, if I'm DeSantis, I'm at my highest point. I'm not going to throw that away in a week or two weeks taking on Donald Trump. Yeah, like, no, like, I just I'm, start building up the war chest. Honestly, I don't even yeah, build a, go build a national database of followers. Get out there. Go shake some hands. Go meet, go work for some candidates. I'm sorry. I'm working on my sound here. I, I, I mean, I think you're exactly right. You're, you're exactly. I just don't see it. I don't know why DeSantis would get in. No, it would be foolish for him to expend all of the capital and the money, energy and momentum that he's built after this election cycle for squandering it for what to go head to head with Trump and possibly lose the potential to primary. Cause if he loses in the primary against Trump, he cannot come back in 28. That's curtains for him. I could not agree more. I, that's exactly where I come down. I thought it was maybe more of a controversial position than others do. I, I think people will kind of, look, maybe, you know, look, I'm not always right on these things. Maybe, maybe he does change his mind. Maybe he does jump in. I just don't think that it happens. You're obviously talking to people down there that are close to DeSantis. That's the right political calculus. I think people are still kind of like looking at um, the midterms and looking at the dust that's kind of, you know, the dust clouds that are still settling from the big war we just had midterms wise and saying, well, DeSantis is the strong guy and he's going to take on Trump and get the nomination now. I, I think no, I, that's I just, it's such an uphill battle that it's pointless. Like I would just if I was advising DeSantis, I would tell him go and raise money and build an email database and get the numbers on your side and prepare for 28 and finish out your second term strong in Florida because you painted the entire state red. And that is, that's not happened in the past 20 years in Florida elections, Florida elections, especially gubernatorial elections. They don't know how to do anything except for deliver very close wins. And the fact that he blew Charlie Chris, a former Republican, former governor of the state out of the water by 15 plus points that is very telling. The last time we saw that happen was Jeb Bush's election as a governor in 2002. There you go. And again, I, I, I'm not convinced that um, 
Look, Florida is an essential piece of the 270 map for the Republicans. It's it's really not a swing state. I, I just I don't buy that. Not anymore. Yeah. No, not anymore. I cannot tell you that it is a battleground. It is Republican mm-hmm. and it will be Republican at least for the next few election cycles because of what happened last I Tuesday. I completely agree. Completely agree. Ohio is the same thing. Is the, the, the 270 map has changed. Ohio and Florida are not swing states. No, not anymore. Well, thanks anyways, Madrid. Appreciate Thank you time. so much. That was amazing insight, Marianne. I appreciate it. It's awesome to have people on the ground. I know, Craig, if you're here too, I want to hear from you from Arizona because, brother, you called this stuff. Go ahead and jump into the queue. Zuka, Lucas, I said Zucas. Lucas, if you could go ahead and unmute. There's the man. And he just got he just got a good dinner. So he's like, he's energized and he's ready to give us some stuff. I'm going to turn it over to you right now to talk about kind of whatever you want. I think you heard some of what I was saying. Um, you know, you're, you're infamous for infamous, I said, by the way, for disagreeing with me and kind of pointing me in a different direction. But, you know, I love your brain. You know, I value everything that you have to say. So uh, why don't you walk us through some of the things that you're seeing and maybe share with, with, with folks and, and hopefully answer some questions on what you saw on election night and give us a sense of what um, what you're seeing that uh, may not be uh, being heard on um, some of the more mainstream channels. No, I always appreciate your, your insight, Mike, truly. And uh, again, one of the reasons that you were always and will always be one of my favorite bosses of all time is that you do take that insight from other people which is so rare in this industry. Um, but I don't really have that much to, to argue with here. Um, I mean, all I heard was Carrie Lake. I mean, I don't think that she's hitting those margins either. I think that she needs to be hitting like 56, 57 in the returns, and she's just getting under that. So it will probably end up being below 30K vote margin. Um, but yeah, that was one race I just, I thought, Democrats were on the cusp of losing. So, um, have you looked at California races at all, Lucas? Uh, not tonight. Yeah, tonight I've just been in the weeds on Nevada and Arizona. Um, but it looks like you know the entire West Coast is going to be blue. Anything touching the actual ocean is going to be blue. Um, so that's encouraging. And you know, I I just think that this entire election we were going into it and the mindset just changed going into the final two months and um there's a photo that took of you back in 2020 where you're just in a zen pose and all of this information coming in so i constantly have to reflect back to that that zen state of mind um but no i mean this election i just tried to keep low expectations for and really just bring myself back to the mindset that we were in a better, I feel more optimistic. And I kept on saying this, I feel more optimistic now than I did six months ago or a year ago. Um, And, you know, you're one of the few people that in politics, who just constantly brings it back to negative partisanship, campaigning on negative partisanship. Um, And that's unfortunately what the era is that we're, we're in right now, you know, um, going into the final week of the election, um, my workplace, Thurbwood, did actually some polling, some national polling with an oversample in the Senate states. And essentially what we found was what I'm sure you've been talking about, which is um, 
we nominated moderate candidates, moderate mainstream sensible candidates across the board, and Republicans nominated extreme candidates. Um, and some of the polling that we did on this, um, some of my coworkers did some great analysis of it. Um, voters chose Republicans by seven point margin when they said, or they said that they were nominating extreme candidates by a seven point margin over Democrats. Um, and among swing voters, that margin was 20 points. And so that really came through in the Senate states and Senate races. Um, and that was the overarching message of this election. That's what the voters told us what they were responding to. Um, and I think, you know, when we look back at some of the polling that was going coming out over the summer when, you know, post Dobbs, um, there was this. I was watching this all summer long, trying to see a pollster who's going to put this out. Um, so will your vote be in support of abortion rights to oppose abortion rights? Like, where does this rank on the importance factor for you? Um, and I think CBS YouGov did this and they did it really well. Um, it kind of broke down to, you know, 40% support, 16% to oppose and another 40% not about abortion. Um, and when we broke that down, looking at the 2020 electorate, that was just about in line with, you know, what the 2020 electorate was and how they broke for Dems and Republicans. Um, when we looked, if Dems got near even a third of those voting on other issues, we would be really, really close to the 2020 numbers. And that's essentially what we just saw. Looking at AP VoteCast data, that's essentially what we saw um in oh, coming out of tuesday and democrats got 31 percent of voters incredibly enough um who considered inflation the single most important factor nationwide um so that that alone you know democrats took this very all of the above strategy on the issues this election cycle and i was kind of i was critical of them not going more into abortion at first. They were leaning heavily into it in their ad spending. Um, and then not going more into economic inflation, lower costs ads. Um, they were being outspent in the top eight Senate races by $40 million post-Labor Day. Um, and then you just saw this barrage of crime and immigration attacks. You know, $80 million they were being outspent in the Senate, top eight Senate races. Um, but it just came back down to them having very equal distribution of ad spending in the Senate races, in the congressional races, and these uh, these moderate candidates who were able to walk away from the party line and not exactly run against like the Biden agenda, but just say, I can be an independent voice for the people of this district and the state. That's kind of what it came down to. And a lot of these uh, moderate incumbents like Abigail Spanberger, Alyssa Slotkin, Susie Lee, Kim Schreier, they all were able to pull out pretty solid, solid margins, save for Susie Lee. That was a closer one than I was expecting. But um, these candidates who were pretty moderate were pulling out races uh, that compared to deep blue districts that those candidates just flipped. Um, and the more moderate candidates actually had, like, Sharice Davids. They were making inroads in parts of the district, red parts of the district, that we frankly did not expect them to be making inroads into. 
Yeah. So. Great insight, Lucas. I mean, love this. Love, love, love this. Love having you here on board. Again, jump into the queue, guys, if you've got a question. Somebody mentioned something in the chat asking, does Trump quiet down the talk about Biden stepping down now? Um, or does everyone just, you know, how, how, how do you see 2024 kind of lining up? Yeah, I, you know, I think I was one of the people that was very hopeful after, or not hopeful, I was hoping that the Republican Party would get a grip on itself after the insurrection and just that vote showed, told it all right there when they did not decide to convict. And anyone that thinks that the Republican Party is going to extricate Trump from it is fooling themselves. Um, and so, you know, Trump probably will continue to uh, to troll Biden. That's kind of his his MO. Um, but I just going the the lead up to 24, I just I think that Biden's going to wait for as long as possible until um, he can't say that he until he's 100 percent sure that he's not going to run. And I, I think that the way that he would go about it is close to how like LBJ did it in 1968, wait as long as possible, get as close to the convention if he were to do that. But I just, for now, I just don't see him not running. I, I just see a really hard time. Again, a lot of you guys probably remember me saying, if Kevin McCarthy has a majority of 20 to 30 votes, which he won't have, but if he did, they would have impeached Joe Biden. They would be bringing Hunter Biden up for a congressional investigation. They would be impeaching Merrick Garland to slow down the Trump prosecution. If if Kevin's got a three-vote majority lead, that gets real dicey. I'm not saying it can't happen, yeah. but I think you have to hold every single Republican in line. Um, it sounds a lot easier than it is, okay? The, the closer the margin of your majority the harder it is to keep the reins over your caucus, which, by the way, is one of the unsung amazing stories about Nancy Pelosi being able to manage her own caucus with her own crazies in the left side of, of her of her conference uh, and doing just a true master class. I think – and look, I'm not a Pelosi fan politically. I hate her politics. I'm going to be very – I, I don't like her politics. I've won hundreds and hundreds of races over the years beating up on Democrats for being Nancy Pelosi Democrats. Okay, I, I, I've been involved in that. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not not proud of it. I, I don't believe in the vision that she has for this country. Sorry, I don't. Sorry, not sorry. Um, but I will say this. She is probably one of the great masters of the legislative process in American history and probably one of the great leaders of the House of Representatives. And they, they, should, they should change the name of either the Cannon or the Longworth building uh, and call it the Pelosi building. I, they, they need, she needs, I, her, her speakership has been unprecedented in American history. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, let me get to some of the questions then. Since Lake is not getting the GOP numbers as was expected, the Hobbs campaign decisions regarding not fighting and or debating – uh, Lake may work for Hobbs because, as I've been saying, it looks like the GOP independent voters crossed over and voted for blue voter blue because they do not like the crazy. How do I feel about that? Am I reading that right? I, I mean, I'll answer it, but Lucas, I want your opinion too. Uh, I I um 
look, I I think I over um, credited Arizona Republicans. Maybe maybe I didn't. I mean, we'll see what the numbers look like. A, a thirty thousand vote margin in Arizona is too damn close. It's too close. I thought I thought Biden, I thought when we were spending so much and spending every damn moment of our lives, Lucas and I spending our lives looking at Arizona precincts and trying to find these Republican votes in 2020, I thought we were going to win by a slightly margin than we did. I thought we would get to about a 20,000, 30,000 vote margin. It was you know tighter than that. Um, this is not much bigger than that. But, um, you know... If I looking back, Hobbs is gonna Hobbs is gonna win. I think she'll win a narrow victory here. It's always hard to argue with with a victory, but and as somebody who was saying that what she did was the right strategy, I, I'm gonna argue against myself. Uh, I, I think I would have had her out there more, and I think the the best way to bring out the crazy was not just to allow it to do to let the crazy show itself, but to show the contrast with somebody who's got more competence and ability to govern. And I would have probably had Hobbs more higher profile if I had to do it over again, even though it looks like they're going to win with the strategy that I was talking about. I mean, Lucas, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I was critical that they did decided not to debate. I mean, you saw, you know, everybody in, that is on this and, and tuned into the political world saw, um, what can happen if you debate in the Fetterman race. Um, and it, you know, the worst circumstances possible lead to a bad outcome there. Um, I just, I don't think that there was any excuse for not, not going in. Um, but you know, I, I think that she's more likely to pull it out now after seeing that last ballot drop, but there is, uh, I'm kind of doubtful still that, um, I had been doubtful that she would pull it through just, trying to keep low expectations. I'm sick of getting burned, especially after 2020. And I put so much hope into Florida. Yes. Um, but, you know, I just, uh, I think that seeing where the swings in Arizona went for Kelly, um, she's getting pretty darn close to uh, what she needs to Hobbs is getting pretty darn close in the major counties. Um, there wasn't nearly as big of a swing in Latina vote um, that I was looking at. Um, so let's, let's, in specific what does that look like then? Arizona yeah. Arizona was on the lower range of the Latino vote, right? Yeah. So, I mean, just looking at uh, some of the swings, it, it looks pretty close to what the 2020 electorate was like um, and the breakdown for what, went for Biden and what went for what went for Kelly in 2020 um, have not gone into the precinct analysis just yet. But I mean, looking at county analysis, even with declined turnout, um, you can see that these high Latino concentrated, high Latino voting age population counties, Mark, Mark Kelly managed to improve on his 20 on the 2018 statewide margins that uh, Kirsten Cinema hit. And swing those counties left, um, save for Santa Cruz County, and improve upon Biden's 2020 margins as well. Um, and you know, I think it can be kind of surmised that with Latino voters making up 
either just a slightly smaller percentage or a similar percentage of the electorate as in 2018 and 2020 um, in Arizona, then much of these gains were from persuasion of, of white voters and likely college-educated white voters. Um, I, I think but, that's the race, you know, Lucas. I think when we look back, that's what yeah. people are going to be like, oh, yeah, look at this. It's kind of that, that Lincoln Project voter that we were, you know, spent years of our lives trying to find and figure out and cultivate and build and move them over. And I think when, when the, the story of the 2022 cycle is talked about rationally with real numbers, I think that that's what we're going to find. Peg just yeah. quoted, you know, hashtag yeah. Bannon line. It's those voters, brother. I mean, and look, I'm proud that we, we, you know, we identified that trend early uh, in the 2020 cycle. Th- these people hate Trumpism. They're still Republicans. They're not. They're not unaligning. Like, they're 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 there. They don't know why they're there, other than negative partisanship. They're like, I'm not a Democrat, uh, you know, and I'm a Republican yeah. from ten years ago. So I guess I'll stick around, not waiting for it to come back. I don't think they ever think it's going to come back. But they're just like, I can't vote for this crap anymore. I just won't do it. No, no. But I mean, I think I have just as much of a concern as you do about the sustainability of running on negative partisanship. Yeah. Um, in the long term. And I mean, I think that you and I have talked about this before, but it like there, there are two ways to activate just lower propensity groups. And one is negative partisanship and the other is sustaining them for the medium and long term and delivering for them um, and delivering on policies. But uh, I mean, you and I kind of, you may disagree with me on what the delivering a policy looks like, but um, that's how you get buy-in and you create a resilient democracy is to deliver for your voter base. Um, and I would say that we just saw one of the most successful legislative sessions in recent memory, 2021 to 2022, just infrastructure, IRA with Medicare and drug negotiation, uh, prescription drug negotiations, and then the CHIPS bill and on and on the gun legislation. Um, we saw an incredible, incredibly successful legislative session, but still voters weren't being communicated this and people were like somewhat running on it. Moderates were somewhat running on it. Um, yeah. And again, I think, really I think we see this was, different as a Republican and a Democrat. I think, you know, Lucas is a good young Democrat believes that if you, if you, if you, if government does more for people, then they're, they'll respond. And then, as a Republican, I'm like, that's not how real people think. <laughs> that, uh, yeah. To a certain extent, some do, most don't. Yeah, I mean, some do, and most of those that do are kind of the Democrats already have. Is my argument. I'm not. I'm not trying to un- undermine yeah. what 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 he's saying. Is I mean, if 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 you believe that government is the vehicle that can get the country back on track, and and the country is heading in a better direction than it was when Biden took over, it just is. And and if you're a Biden person, you're probably saying it's because of Joe Biden, and that that that's fair. And once the right track, wrong direction starts to come back into line, voters aren't necessarily saying maybe it was government, maybe it wasn't. But what they're saying is Joe Biden's taking care of business, so I'm going to support that dude. Right? That's that's kind of what yeah. you're looking for. Real quick, a little bit of business here. Uh, you're listening to Mic Drop on the Colin app. I'm here today with Lucas Holtz, my uh, data expert. I, I would say my data expert. He's a data expert in his own right beyond that. Discussing what's going on with midterm results. Where are we headed? If you guys have not subscribed to the show, subscribe. Jump in right now and subscribe to the Mic Drop show right there just by clicking on that icon. It alerts you when we do these special shows and you can kind of 
uh, be immediately kind of made aware. It'll zing you on your app, and you can kind of jump into the discussions on the issues of the day. We will probably be having more of these as issues arise in the next couple of weeks. And if you could also do me a big favor and share that little person icon with the plus, if you could point that on there and share with people on social media, on Twitter, let them know that we're having this discussion today. Broaden the group. It helps us kind of build not only that algorithm and support, but it gets the discussion going in a much better way. Love my regulars. Love my people. You know, I know so many of you guys by name and your experience now, um, but I do want to make the groups a little bit bigger because I think it's more vibrant when we do more of that. Another question that just came in, who's Trump's running mate, Lucas, in 2024? Andy's asking the question from Australia. I'm going to tell you who I think it is right now. I think it's Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, I'm going with Mike Pence. I think that he really wants a second run at Mike Pence. Um, <laughs> Seriously? Hey, he provides a great foil. Um, yeah. No, definitely not. Um, you know, if, if Carrie Lake had I agree with that. won the I agree with that. race, if she wins, I think that she's a front runner. Um, but frankly, I'm, I'm with you, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, she's bombastic. She's charismatic in the worst possible way, but she really walks the Trump line. Um, she kisses the ring. That's what he cares about most right now. And um, I'm, I'm right there with you, probably Marjorie yeah. Taylor Greene. I, and look, we're getting questions. People, you know, um, Peg's asking Stefanik. I've got a question about Nikki Haley. Absolutely not. That is not, yeah. what, that is not what Donald Trump is looking for. Donald Trump does not need the establishment the way that he did in 2016 to coalesce with Mike Pence. Mike Pence convinced conservatives, evangelical conservatives, that Donald Trump was acceptable. That was what the, the what you know Mike Pence will have written on his political epigraph. Is that the right word? Uh, whatever you know, late in life. That that is why he was chosen. What we learned through the Trump era was after that imprimatur was put on him after delivering the court, they don't care what Trump wants is a fighter. He wants a loyalist who is not looking for brains. He's not looking for competence. He's not looking for government experience. He's looking for whoever's going to bring the fight. I agree with Lucas. Had it had, had Carrie Lake won, she still may. I don't think she will. If Carrie Lake wins, she will be the nominee because of Arizona and because she is 100% loyal. She's photogenic, and she is an absolutely focused tiger in the fight. And you saw, I don't know if anybody paying close attention to Marjorie Taylor Greene, Marjorie Taylor Greene was already basically saying she needs to serve out her full term as governor uh, to make that commitment because I, I really do think it's between those two women. And I believe at the end of the day, it, it will be Marjorie Taylor Greene because that's what Trump wants. Yeah. Is he wants fealty, he wants loyalty, and he wants a fighter, 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 especially that can bring out that crazy crowd. And I don't think that there's anybody better than Marjorie Taylor Greene, except for maybe Carrie Lake. And if she pulls this out, if Carrie Lake pulls this out, by the way, um, I think the attention and the focus that is all exclusively on DeSantis at this moment starts to pivot to, to really elevate Carrie Lake and her national profile in a way that we have not seen uh, in a long time. Katie, you're in the queue. Uh, just go ahead and unmute and go ahead and ask the question of either Lucas or myself. Welcome to the show. Hi, um, thanks for taking my question. Um, I guess my question is about kind of these competing forces. So you have <clears throat> farther progressives on the left um, competing with these um, moderate independents that swung left for this election cycle. 
And I think you can already see like different groups taking credit. The youth vote obviously means a little bit more progressive. Um, how did those forces, I, I, I guess like how you keep those coalitions together going into 2024 um, because they kind of have competing desires in terms of what they want to see from their govern- governance. Lucas, you take that. You answer mm. first, then I'll share my opinions. Yeah, no, I mean, it, at every point um, in the day leading up to the election, the day after the election, everyone's going to be taking credit that it's, it's their coalition and their their voter group that they, they're the reason that Democrats or Republicans won. Um, I mean, I think uh, there are youth groups um, that will admit as much. Youth turnout did not gigantically increase over over 2018. Um, and if you actually look at the county level data, um, I think David Shore did some of this analysis too. something like the proportion of voters that were under the age of 35, you could actually look at the, those higher concentrated counties um, to show that the turnout was going to be lower in those higher concentrated younger counties uh, compared to the older, like 65 plus counties where turnout was dramatically higher. Um, so I, I just, youth did not make up a larger portion of, of the electorate this cycle. It doesn't mean that they weren't important. I am firm believer that driving up youth turnout is essential for the democratic coalition. Um, it's just as essential for, you know, persuading moderate independents and persuading former Republicans and soft Republicans. Um, but there are different priorities that we need to communicate to to each of these different voter groups. Um, and I just, I, I think that, you know, Dobbs being overturned definitely helped motivate those those young people, my generation, which I'm very, very happy about, but um, not anything close to 2020 or 2018 turnout levels that I think that we would have wanted to see. Yeah, anytime I'm asking a question or I'm asked a question about mo- voter motivation, um, and I hate to be this cynical, but the first thing I'm asking is, is what are they against? And you have to remember the world changed after the Dobbs decision. It, it wasn't build back better. It wasn't student debt loan relief. It wasn't, it, it, it was, it wasn't any of the legislative accomplishments. If you, if you asked in the exit polls, name the three top legislative accomplishments of the Biden administration, people wouldn't say anything they wouldn't even know. 95% of people wouldn't even know. What they would say is, I'm here because I'm pissed off about the abortion decision, and I'm going to send those Republicans a message. So it's not really what the Democratic coalition is for. I, I, that's where I think going back to kind of the Obama coalition wasn't a pro-Obama, pro-Democratic coalition. If you look at what it was, it was an anti-Republican coalition. And that's what I think we are starting to see. And, and again, I, I really think a lot of people are missing it. There's a potential for a realignment of Republican college-educated voters. Uh, and here's why. And to, to, be, to be Democrats. And here's why. And, and there's a question in the queue about Orange County. And here's what I think that people aren't paying attention to either. Mm-hmm. Orange County is one of the few areas in the country that has the highest number of college-educated Republican voters. 
this isn't Arkansas or Missouri or Montana or, you know, the deep South. This is wealthy, high income earners in one of the toniest counties in the country. And that's not where Republicans tend to live anymore. It's very, very rare. And so when I look at Katie Porter's district, for example, where she's beating Scott Bond, opening up that lead, I, I, when I look at the numbers, the registration advantage, especially in a year, an off year like this, I don't even think she should be all that competitive. She's up like 4,000 votes on this dude. I think Katie Porter wins that race. And the reason why is because yeah. it's a highly educated electorate. Okay. And, and so let's look back at 2016 in Orange County, these highly educated Republican voters did not vote for Trump at the top of the ticket. The Republican numbers overperformed for the congressional races. In 2018, they swept in an entirely blue Orange County. There was no Republican representing Orange County for the first time, I think, in state history. Okay, So that means these Republican college-educated voters voted for the Democrat. In 2020, they voted for Biden and then voted for the Republican down ticket. The Republicans pick up three seats back from Orange County, but they vote for Joe Biden at the top of the ticket. In 2022, we're going to find out what happened, but there's a very good likelihood that they go for all Democrats. And the numbers may not look like it's really right now, but people are not counting in the fact in Orange County that there's a lot of college-educated voters, and college-educated Republicans are the voters. I just gave you four election cycles, only one of which they were voting for Republicans down ticket, and it's because they had the opportunity to vote for a Democrat at the top of the ticket. That's a huge indication of voter movement, of a realignment. Three of four elections, and in the third exceptional one, it was because they had the ability to vote for a check of a Republican, I'm sorry, of a Democrat at the top of the ticket. This is in the most Republican educated county in America. Like we gotta pay we got we gotta focus on that as a really key data point. And that's why I think what happens in Orange County, win or lose, those margins are gonna tell us a lot. Because as I have been saying, Hispanics are the 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 rightward shifting non-college educated voter. But the Republican ban in line, Lincoln Project, suburban college-educated woman is moving left. In three of the last four election cycles, she is moving left. And that, that movement, these are the two swingiest groups in America, that movement, that shift is what is creating that tension in the country and the realignment that I think is likely happening. And so we don't Right now, we talk about these, 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 um, this, this is ironic too, and I'm realizing it for the first time. David Shore, if you don't follow David Shore and who David Shore is, find out because I think the kid's a genius. I say a kid because he's like in his early mid 30s. I did a panel with him on Berkeley. We agree on most things, which is probably also why I agree with he's a genius. He's a Democrat, he's a data guy, and he believes that there's not enough discussion on class in the Democratic Party. I couldn't agree with him more. I think he's exactly right. And it's why Democrats continue to lose voters of color okay now but they're also picking up white voters and that's one of the untold stories of what happened in 2022 on tuesday nights too listen to what i'm going to say this is really interesting democrats overperformed with white voters on tuesday night pretty significantly at, at the expense of losing voters of color that's the exact same strategy that the Republicans did to elect Donald Trump. Now, I, I'm not saying it was a concerted strategy, but Dobbs gave them that opening. 
And there's a question now, the, the real big question now for Democrats and Republicans and suburban college educated women is, do women go back to the Republicans after Dobbs? Was this just a one election cycle thing and it will disappear into the rearview mirror? Or was this so significant that it shook people, shook women specifically, college educated Republican women loose and they're like, fuck it, I'm not voting for the Republican Party ever again. I mean, that's a real question. And that if, if not, then it, that's a realignment. And it only needs to be four, five, six points to be significant. What we're learning from the shift of Hispanics in 2020 is, as David Shore says, the realignment already happened. It doesn't need to get bigger. That nine-point shift from 2016 to 2020 was enough to realign enough Hispanic voters to change the competitiveness of both congressional districts and statewide campaigns. We're seeing that happen with white college-educated suburban women and non-college-educated Latino voters. That was literally my first tweet after the 2020 elections when we beat Donald Trump. I said that's what the battle is going to be in the midterms, and that is exactly what the battle is. And like I said, I think we'll hear more about it in the coming days when all the data is in and all the scrambling for the fake narrative stuff kind of stops. So going off of that, Mike, because this is my my real question coming out of this, uh, what I'm thinking about going into 2024 and future election election cycles, because that was our question, right? Can Democrats hold this coalition together that really batted back against Trump in in 2016, in 2018 and 2020? Um, and my question really is, can Democrats utilize the Republican strategy this multi-decade strategy that led to the overturning of Roe, can they utilize this energy and this negative partisanship in future election cycles? Um, you know, we look at the states that they put this on the ballot, the, the referendum, the propositions on the ballot, um, and look at the effect down, down ballot on Democrats. If this is center of mind, to two women, two college educated women, two young voters in future election cycles. I'm curious to see if, I mean, obviously the issues change every cycle. They change week by week, day by day. Um, and we cannot predict what the major issue is going into 24. But if this is front of mind in a very salient way that breaks through to voters um, and Democrats keep it there, then I. I think that this will be a multi-election issue. Um, like I said, I and you've said before, negative partisanship is not sustainable. Um, and it always changes and it doesn't build the coalition, a stable coalition. But I mean, that's kind of what I'm thinking about um, going into 2024 and how Democrats continue to not only just utilize this and be back against Republicans, but how do they eventually develop the coalition that they need, get the people elected that they need to enact, um, you know, row into law. And I think that if that's center of mind for voters, then hopefully that would happen. But your thoughts on that? Uh, I think that's probably right. Um, I, I, I am always a little bit hesitant about the, the Democratic coalition. I'm not a big I, – I, I really believe that the difference between the Democratic coalition, which is far more diverse than the Republican coalition, 
is really, really, really focused on what it's against. Uh, I really think that there, mm-hmm. there's what what the Democratic Party stands for does not mean a whole lot. What really matters is what it it stands against, and that's that's what mm-hmm. I think there is not enough focus on uh, or understanding of, and that's why I think that they were in really deep trouble. Um, heading into remember you, you have to remember they the, the Democrats were in deep trouble before Dobbs. And we also have to look, we have to be honest about this. If it hadn't been for Dobbs, there would have been a red wave. It would have been a big one too. Big one. Okay. Because you wouldn't have had the turnout and it wasn't that big, but if you had the turn, you wouldn't have had the turnout of of Generation Z voters and you wouldn't have had near the defections that you had of Republican voters. You don't, you take those two out of the equation and you've got a very, very big pickup of voters from, um, um, you know, for for the Republicans, the Republicans pick up a ton of seats, a ton, not 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 a twenty seat majority. I mean, we're talking a ton. Um, so I I just I, I just don't yeah. think I, I the Democrats got like I said, this was the Battle of Dunkirk. This was a, this was a this was a really really um fortunate escape. I'm not saying they didn't take advantage of the opportunities they were given because they did, but what I'm absolutely going to say is. That had had Dobbs not happened, there was nothing that Joe Biden and the Democrats were doing that was giving a positive reason for um, um, Democrats to show up. It just it just wasn't happening. No, you're right, yeah. Peggy. Go ahead. On uh, I, I put you up into the speaker's queue. We'll, we'll drop you off as soon as you ask the question. But you have trouble getting. You're getting having a little bit of trouble getting into the queue. So there you are. Hi, Mike. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you doing? How do you feel about the elections? I feel pretty good. I feel pretty good. You Um, worked pretty hard. I did. I did. And gearing up to uh, do some phone banking for Georgia, maybe some postcards. I did that in the last runoff anyway. I'm feeling good about that. I'm a little concerned. Arizona, if Dobbs wins, and I hope she does, I'm concerned about any kind of violence breaking out because it's just crazy over there uh, what's been going on there today. Yeah. But my questions, you were talking about the college-educated white suburban women, and you were saying that late in Beto O'Rourke's camp- campaign, late in the campaign, that that's where he needs to focus on in Texas to help him pull him pull his numbers up more. So I just want to be sure that I'm reading that right. And also, we got to talk about Texas. Just Well, I, I really don't think Democrats can win without getting enough college-educated Republican women pretty much anywhere. That's where Beto should have been focused on. And like I said, Beto, I think he did r- relatively well con- considering. And I think he closed the gap at the top of the ticket in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, I was cri- I was yeah. critical of his campaign for spending too much time in the rurals, rural counties. I think I was exactly right. He, he should have been in the suburbs. That's where the turnout that, that's where yes. the turnout was highest. If you look at the plot map, turnout was down in the rural part of the counties. Um, and that tells us something too. You got to remember, Donald Trump's name has to be on the ballot to get very high overperformance from rural white, non-college educated voters. He's never they've the Republicans have never gotten the type of vote totals they have as they did in sixteen and in twenty, and pollsters got it wrong because they were not adjusting for that. Incidentally, let me say one more thing about Trumpism too, because people a lot of a lot of a lot of pundits are saying. 
Trump was a loser for them in six in in eighteen and in twenty and now in twenty two. Three of the four elections, he was a loser. That's not true. He was a loser in four of four. He lost the popular votes. Okay, he lost in sixteen. He wasn't a winner. He lost when he, he lost by subtraction, and then he lost huge seats in eighteen, and then he lost in twenty, and he lost again tonight. He's never been a winning calculus for the Republican Party ever. And as as the party devolves, if the Democrats don't run full bore at college-educated white women, they're making a huge mistake. If okay, that's how they'll win races going forward. Kind of to Lucas's point, if they want to put a stake in the heart of the Republican Party, they need a working-class agenda to bring Hispanic voters back. If they do both, they will be the dominant party for the next generation in American politics. I'm convinced of that. Will they do that? No. No. Because they're, they're already in complete denial about the Hispanic vote. Complete denial. Still. Like, they think this was somehow an affirmation. You listen to Congressman Gallegos. You listen to, you know, Latino Victory Fund. You listen to all these organizations that get all this money from the DCCC. And it's like, it, it's the denial is as bad or worse as climate change denial. There's just no, no self-awareness. None. And, as you know, as a result, they're going to, yeah. you know, David Shore, Noah Smith, the guys that look at the data for the Democrats, they're basically saying, guys, there's a five-alarm fire going on here. There's a five-alarm fire, and no no one's paying attention to it. If I could jump in, I just have to say, we the polling that we did going into this final week shows that Democrats have a major, major issue on party brand. If it goes unaddressed in the next two years, then we're going to be looking at an incredible, like 2020 margins still, and probably more deterioration among Latino voters, black men. It's going to be incredibly difficult to, to get that back. And, and when it comes to shares my values and which party is values hard work, Republicans are winning those on, by 15 points over Democrats. Looks down on people like me. People believe that Democrats look down on people like them. They believe they're slightly more elitist. Um, but, I mean, you know, this is something that we're going to have to address as a party and hopefully uh, legislation and, you know, not having too many fights in Washington, D.C. that gets public and uh, shows that the party is in disarray if it is in disarray. Um I think having the Republicans as a very stark contrast in the House is going to be um, very, very useful, um, especially when debt limit stuff comes up. Um, you know, you're going to be able to point that at Kevin McCarthy and the extremists in the Republican Party is throwing the global economy into chaos right there. Good observation uh, there, Lucas. Peggy, thank you for the question. I'm not sure if you had another one. We can jump you back right into the queue again if you'd like. I mean, to cut you off, but wanted to get to Annika to ask a question. Hey, um, so I got two questions. One is, I'm um, not sure if you talk about Tim Ryan. Can we use Tim Ryan's strategy to get back their blue-collar white folks and um, non-white? And also, what what can we do as... Democrat to force our leaders to listen. Like, 
guys like me, what what can we do? I mean, like we we agree with you guys, but apparently uh, Elizabeth Warren thinks that everybody wants concern about you know what they they. It seems like Elizabeth Warren is totally thinking of don't agree with what doesn't align with my 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 view that people just don't like crazy Republican and it's not that we love or I like all the Democrats policy. Right. Yeah. What 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 should we do as you know as regular Democrat? Lucas, you want to take those two? Yeah, I mean you know Tim Ryan is exceptionally um exceptionally a great communicator and ran a fairly decent race um given the challenges and he likely carried a couple of those congressional districts down ballot as well. Um, he performed better in some of the rural areas, but um, frankly, it's just, I, in Ohio is going to be incredibly challenging. You know, Jared Brown is going to be up for reelection in Ohio. So hopefully see more take a splitting there. But um, I do believe that the, the Tim Ryan and sort of the, the John Fetterman and, um, you know, these guys, and it's sort of the same exact strategy that we had at the Lincoln Project in 2020, which was go after, drive down the margins in rural counties. Um, and that's what, that's what Fetterman did. Um, that's what Tim Ryan did and try to drive up the vote in the urban areas, but you cannot rely just on the urban area vote. Um, it's becoming slightly more Republican. They're making inroads. Um, we're running on, you know, populist economic agenda, in my opinion, is not in itself a solution. Um, I think that it can have, it, polling has shown this over and over again, um, especially when it came to inflation, that hammering, you know, oil companies for price gouging and other companies on price gouging may have been slightly effective. And Catherine Cortez Masto ran a bunch of these ads. A lot of moderate Democrats ran ads like that. Um, but ultimately, I think that it really just comes down to having a character, an outside non-DC character that you're going to be fighting for people like you. He, this is going to be a candidate that's fighting for people in Ohio, people in Pennsylvania, people in Nevada, um, and less so on the on the issues. It's really just about framing and establishing your character or else you're going to be coming up opening yourself up to attacks on crime um attacks on immigration and that is you know i my some of the research that i did going into this election was exactly that like democrats were going to get hammered on crime and immigration and they needed to get out in front on it um but having that character and establishing that you are running on an agenda but you're also you are working for the people back home that that is so essential and that you have not gone dc i would uh i look i i i largely um agree with that what, what i would push democrats to do again just as a as an advisor generally my political strategy would be the future of the party um, is less John Fetterman and Tim Ryan and more sort of Alex Padilla and uh, like a Henry Cuellar model. And I'm not holding up Henry Cuellar as a, as a model of virtue here. 
But what I am saying is he is the most moderate member of the entire Democratic conference. And it would appear, at least early on, that his congressional district is showing the furthest shift back to the left. And we, we, uh, Lucas and I were looking at some data points that I think uh, Nate Cohn put out showing that the Hispanic, the most Hispanic precincts in Ohio shifted massively in the Democrats' direction with Tim Ryan as the uh, candidate. And what that tells me, uh, and remember, a lot of these Hispanic concentrated districts are moving to the right. So let's 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 take a look at what that means here. And I'm saying this because I don't think the working class model is you know John Fetterman in a hoodie and shorts and a goatee looking like a union hall member. It works. I'm not saying it's a bad choice. I think it's better than having him look like maybe a Beto O'Rourke who looks like you know he just came out of you know a modeling agency and is trying to appeal to working class voters. I just I just don't think that it has the same relatability. But what really has relatability is Hispanic working class folks. And, and, and so that's where I would be looking is don't, don't try to retread stuff that's not necessarily working like Ryan. Ryan is an exceptionally good candidate. He's an exceptionally bad candidate. He's running a, in a state where the fundamentals decisively benefit the Republican. So I don't, I don't think he could have overcome it. I think he got what they got was as good as it was going to get for Democrats. But you ha- you can't ignore the data. And Lucas, I want to work with you on a piece on this. In, in these Hispanic dense precincts, we're seeing a rightward shift. The places where we're seeing the smallest shift or the biggest shift left is more of a Cuellar district than in Gallegos's district, who's trying to occupy the lane left of yeah. Kristen Cinema. So that tells me something. Ryan, the the most moderate Democratic candidates, got most of the Hispanics back. Are you agreeing I, with this, I, Lucas? Does, am I'm I making not sense? With the Ohio congressional districts, um, but I mean, I, I largely agree with you. And like Cuellar, um, you know, it's a his district swung far right between 2016 and 2020. Um, and of all of the districts that from that swung right in 2020, um, his is the only district that has swung left in 2022 this election cycle, you look at, you know, all of the Florida heavily concentrated Latino districts. This is what I'm talking about. Heavily concentrated Latino districts that swung right from 2016 to 2020. All of them except, and we're still waiting on California returns. um, But you look at Florida, you look at Nevada, you look at New Mexico too, even New Mexico too, um, where Democrats managed to pull it off an incredible, incredible win there. And I know, um, you know, Chuck Rocha, your partner at the Latino Vote podcast was somewhat involved in that race. And they were in a great campaign. They managed to just barely hold on. Even that district, largely Mexican-American voter population, swung five points to the right this year from 2020. And same thing is true in Texas 15, Texas 23, Texas 34. They all swung to the right, um, less so than they did in 2020, but they still are moving to the right. And then you look at, you know, Pennsylvania 7, where Susan Wilde was running. Um, like, this is one of the 
few districts in Pennsylvania that has a high Latino population. And her district, she managed to hold on and swing back to the left by one point relative to 2020. Um, so, I mean, I, I think, I, I mean, I largely agree with you. Um, and we're going to have to wait to see a couple more days to see how these California races go. But, I mean, Democrats have to address this issue and how they run on a making ends meet agenda. Because um, that's not happening right now. And they're not communicating that effectively enough to Latino voters. Do you sense that there's a, a um, that they're getting it, Lucas? That the Democrats you know, are getting I, a Latino vote? It's hard to say. I'm not at the center of like DCCC operations or DNC operations, but they did play, place a large investment, you know, into Nevada. Um, into Arizona. So I think in those places, they, they do get it somewhat on the Senate level. Um, but I think that we need, you know, more Latino, you know, campaign managers, more Latino um, consultants on these campaigns. Um, a lot more conversation needs to be going into it. But I think largely we're we're not there yet. And I think some of that has to do just with the the bacon how much the Republican Party has baked into the cake this their outreach to Latino voters over the last six years since 2016 um, and they have a very very good advantage with all of the social media operations that Latino voters are on so part of that is breaking through that sort of bubble that we we need to get into. So we've been running a little bit uh, for geez, what, an hour and a half now, a little hour 45. So um, we're going to call it quits here. I'm going to make one last final comment sort of on the Latino vote stuff that we were talking about. Quick question came in. Likelihood that Tony Cardenas chairs the DCCC. I think it's very, very likely with the loss of Maloney. I think that if the Democrats don't put a Latino with a Latino focus in charge, I think they'll be making a huge, huge mistake. It's a great opportunity. Tony's been a longtime friend. I'm just more worried that he's going to be beholden to a lot of the, sort of the entrenched Latino interests that are more focused on being Democrats than understanding the Latino community. It's a very, very real problem in the Democratic Party. Um, but we'll have to see if Tony can address that or not. And then finally, um, there's this weird argument out there that, um, again, was being made promulgated by Congressman uh, Gallegos, Ruben Gallegos of Arizona. What he's saying is, how is it possible when we can have a record number of Latino Democrats elected and not be winning more of the Latino vote? Which the answer is <laughs> math. <laughs> you, you, can, you can win more seats in a redistricted area, but if the margins are closing, it's affecting statewide contests in Senate and gubernatorial races. So, Congressman Gallegos, you got really damn lucky in a year when you had huge Republican and independent crossover vote. Your margins got tighter with the Hispanic vote. That's how it happens. It's called basic math. And that's what I think the, the Democrats really, really don't get is, is it's, it's so inconceivable to them, even their professional consultants, that they could be losing this vote, and they are. That they they just they they miss the basics they miss the obvious and he poses that question and I'm kind of embarrassed for him because the, the answer is extraordinarily simple and the answer is math. 
With that, guys, we're going to wrap up. I want to thank you very much for joining us on this episode of Mic Drop. If you would, again, go ahead and share it to us, share it with other listeners. Um, I think we're going to be trying to do this again either Tuesday or Wednesday. We're going to see. I may be traveling, um, but I'm going to try to get a program out as early as I can once I know my schedule, whether we're going to do it a day early, which would be Tuesday at 5.30 uh, Pacific, 8.30 East Coast time, or if we're going to do it on the regular 5.30 scheduled time, I will let you know. Make sure that you have not, if you have not subscribed, subscribe to the show just so that you'll be alerted on whichever day it's going to be. And if there are any emergency announcements or big developments that pop up, we may just decide to do a quick show, not this normal hour and a half stuff, which I love doing. I love going long. You guys know that. But also if we want to just spend 20 or 30 minutes on a quick development, especially if it's related, uh, as Andy just pointed to Trump Fest, maybe we do something uh a quick and dirty, as we call it, right after uh, Trump's announcement to talk about what the potential ramifications might be. Until then, love you guys. Thank you very much for being part of this community. And thank you so much for being a part of Mic Drop.